Namaste and good evening to all of you. Tonight I thought about outlining in this weekly speech, in the satsang. I've seen that in the list of lectures that we did along the years, satsangs here in Agama, we had a satsang which was about Shiva in Tantra, what does the aspect of Shiva mean in the Tantric tradition. And then I realized that although we mention a lot of things when we talk about the Shakti festival or the Mahavidya teachings or so many other Shakti elements that we have here in the school, Shakti groups, complete femininity and so many, so many other things, I did not do a presentation about the role of Shakti. Tantra and Tantric Yoga, which Agama is a form of Tantric Yoga, is so full of energy at all the levels, like constantly we talk about energy and how to use the energy, that one loses a little bit the meaning of the context. That means if you stand back a little bit and look at it, you realize the importance of this very concept of working with energy. I would like first to start with a few metaphysical statements. I took down here a few quotes from some fundamental scholarly comments on the Tantric tradition, on the Tantric Yoga, in which uh, I basically I pick up some of the main ideas and show how they relate to the practice itself, to the various domains of practice. And one of the quotes, I'm going to read a little bit of quote and then to comment, elaborate on it. A little quote here speaks about the essential element of the tantric outlook concerning the divinity and the world, the concept of shakti, of energy which is supreme and human at the same time, which is vital force as much as spiritual. This already brings a whole range of things which in normal forms of spirituality is not understood. That energy is both human and at the same time supreme. Like the energy in the sun, the energy in the macrocosm, the energy in the universe is the same with the energy in your Manipura chakra. Something which happens in your digestive system or something which happens in your emotions is actually related to something which happens at the level of the solar system or in other. It's supreme and human. The scope doesn't matter exactly as water is H2O, whichever way you take it. Either it's water in a drop or water studied at a microscopic level or it is water in an ocean at a macroscopic level. It's still H2O and some properties are absolutely universal. In this way, working with energy is a great, great thing from the very beginning because it unites the human being with the environment. It connects the human being with the universe because the same things which happen in us happen in the universe. Otherwise, why would I understand that when there are solar spots, some people can have digestive problems or some people can have heart issues, issues with heart disease, just because there are spots on the sun? How does that relate? Why does it relate at all? And what to do about that? And also, which is vital force 
as much as spiritual. Energy is energy is energy. It's the same energy. It's always energy. So when you speak about the spiritual energy and you say, oh, this person has a lot of spiritual energy, it's absolutely the same energy, which is also vital energy as well. Ah, that for one person it's placed in a lower chakra and for another person it's placed in a higher chakra. That's just a technicality which is solved through yoga. And that why, that's why no, it's like it's always better to have energy because when you have energy you can do things. You don't say, oh, I don't need vital energy because the vital energy will make me heavy, will make me too sexual, will make me too this or to that. Energy is energy is energy. Again, therefore, wherever you have it, you have it. And when you have the energy, a lot of things can happen. That's why, again, in a tantric tradition, in a tantric yoga, you would go for energy anyway. You wouldn't say, oh, if I swim in the ocean, I get too much water. And if I stay too much in the sunshine, I get too much fire energy. If I do too much of this, I... energy is energy. The question is, if you manage to deal with it, and we are going to see some of the mysteries which come together with it. That's why when people say, what is the characteristic of the tantric tradition? Because you say, Agama is a tantric school. What does it mean, tantric? It's this thing with sex. And everybody knows who has listened to a couple of satsangs or lectures or other workshops and courses that we say it very clearly time and again. The sexual part of the Tantric Yoga is about 5% of what is contained in Tantric Yoga. But a lot of things about mantras, yantras, microcosm, macrocosm, and other alchemy, sublimation, and other such things, they have nothing to do with sexuality, at least not directly, and yet they are part of the Tantric Yoga. And therefore, if somebody is asking scholarly, which is a characteristic of uh, tantra, you know, and so the main characteristic which you say is exactly this concept of Shakti. If it's yoga, or you can put it Christianity, Christian prayer with Shakti, like in which you talk about Shakti and what Shakti does and what Shakti, how Shakti works, energy, then it becomes Tantra. You can even have a Tantric. Christianity, exactly as in Buddhism, they have taken over the traditional Buddhism which exists here in the southern countries, like the Theravada Buddhism, and they transformed it into a Tantric Buddhism. It's still Buddhism, but it's Buddhism with Shakti. It's Buddhism with Prana. It's Buddhism with Chakras. It's, and then it's called Tantric Buddhism. Do they also have some sexual symbolism and some sex, sexual practices? Yes. They do. And that's why Tibetan Buddhism is very, very different from Thai Buddhism. They are both of them Buddhism, but they are not necessarily aligned with each other. Quite not at all, actually. And thus, working with energy is one of the things which makes the whole difference. And uh, this humble, fundamental, metaphysical thing called Shakti or energy is everywhere and it does all the work and it's right under our noses and we very often praise it conceptually and metaphysically to see what a great advantage it is. 
because working with energy is the most scientific, the most natural science way, and it saves us a lot of effort. I'm going to give you some examples in the end of things where it applies brilliantly, and then you are going to see that if you don't have the understanding as energy, as levels of the universe, as chakras, as frequency of vibration, that some energy is slower and some energy is faster, more dynamic, then you simply can't understand properly different spiritual, mystical, parapsychological or other such elements, while with energy everything becomes crystal clear. This is definitely one of the great benefits which I see in Tantric Yoga, this capability to work with energies. It's first of all one statement taken from metaphysics. It says that for Tantra, the supreme masculine principle, which is called Shiva in Kashmiri Shaivism, never acts through himself, but only through the agency of his energy, the feminine principle, which is the force that manifests, enlivens, and resorbs the universe. This force exists at all the levels, in gods as well as in man. At the highest level, this is the goddess, the mother of the universe, while lower it is in another way, but still it's energy, The countless forms of energy set in a hierarchical system, like a pyramid of energies, higher in Ajna than in Anahata, and higher in Anahata than in Muladhara. So there is a hierarchy of these energies, which are as many aspects of the primordial energy, as well as secondary entities, human being, the soul of the human being, and even at the lowest levels, various spirits or other subtle, invisible influences. So first of all, I'm reading, I said I have here about six paragraphs which I want to first comment to warm up on this concept of energy and then looking into the applications. Therefore, first of all, is the ultimate metaphysical thing that we constantly, people who come to spirituality and who have a good karma enough to wake up because some people are feeling quite blocked about some spiritual things especially in modern times, spirituality becomes more and more difficult for a variety of reasons that is not the place to comment in this satsang. And because of this, some people, when they come to spirituality and they decide to go practically for something spiritual, they, one way or another, adopt or approve of this concept of God that there is a sort of a universal consciousness. They sometimes feel awkward because of the Judeo-Christian-Islamic implications of the word God, and they say, yeah, yeah, I am spiritual, but I am not religious in that way, because for me, spirituality, sure, I can conceive of something at the level of universal consciousness, which is beyond space, beyond time, and like an ocean of consciousness. But when it comes to correlating it with God from just some religion or something, that becomes like a little bit too low. Well, when you relate to God in your spirit, like, oh, I'm doing yoga, some people may say, I'm doing yoga because I want to reach God, or I want to see God, or I want to feel God, or I want to be one with God. No, Our relationship with God is actually, that's a very abstract thing to say. That's why in various theologies and mystics, 
They say, how can you be one with God when God is God and you are just an ant crawling on the face of a planet somewhere in a corner of a galaxy? No, how do you resolve the scope between this? But in the moment when you consider the energy, it is the energy because the, the divine is manifested through the energy which goes from alpha to omega, from the human being and from the atoms all the way to deities and metaphysics and space-time in its most abstract forms, it's all of it energy. And in this way, with energy, we see that we have the ladder, the whole evolution, the whole practice of yoga. It's just a transformation of energy. It's just working on the energy on levels which go higher and better and more and more spiritual. And then it becomes possible to conceive of a union between the level of existence of a human being, which at the scale of the universe is insignificant, and compare it with the level of a con cosmic consciousness, which is, through its very nature, infinite, absolute, immutable, perfect. Another paragraph which goes deeper. All these energies have their well-defined role in the unfolding of the cosmic cycles as well as in the fine process of liberation or chaining of man. By various techniques and methods, the yogin learns how to make them, these energies, intercede for him and how to dominate them so that they become thus means, useful modalities, or else they become obstacles of his spiritual evolution and control over the universe. Like if you have too much energy, it can rise your kundalini and generate high states of consciousness. If you have too much energy and you don't deal with it, it can create confusion, drowsy, darkness, and eventually completely the opposite of spirituality, like falling asleep. It's the same energy. It's the same energy which is either a modality of awakening or it becomes an obstacle. The tantric tradition is very beautiful in this, and it says this, it, people, when they fall, they fall because of the earth, because the earth attracts you. And if you stumble over something and fall, it's the earth which kind of pulled you down. So when you fall, you fall because of the earth. And other people, precisely because of the earth, they can prop their feet on it and stand up. So the earth can make you fall. The earth can make you stand up. It's the same energy, it's the same reality. But the question is how you use it. And that's why once one understands the nature of energy, that Shakti, the energy, Shakti as it's called in Tantra, Shakti or Prana as it's called generally in Yoga, Shakti is exactly the milieu, the environment through which we move, and that everything which we do has to be an auspicious thing of energies. That's why the processes of being free or of being a prisoner, of being conscious or of being unconscious, all of them, by techniques and methods, the yogis are working exactly on this energy. It's like between you and the shore of the lake, there is water. This water is energy. And until you get to the other shore, which would be like nirvana, you have to swim a lot through water. The whole thing is about water. So whoever knows how to swim, whoever knows how to control the water, will make it to the other shore. Our trip through this universe is a trip in the world of energy. Because even the elementary particles 
are energy ultimately according to the modern understanding in quantum mechanics and the others. So either they are condensed as matter or they are fluid energy, invisible energy. Nevertheless, everything is a matter of energy. That's why this concept has such an overwhelming importance and everything in Tantric Yoga is about dealing with the energies. Another paragraph, the number four here. Since each and every one of these energies at an ultimate analysis emanates from the essential energy, each one of them has a male pole or partner. Since any creation is considered as being the result of a union between the masculine and the feminine, the yang and the yin, and they are complementary. That's why in Tantra one permanently encounters or senses at all the levels the presence or the underlying presence of a sexual symbolism. Not everybody in Tantric Yoga goes into the sex part of it. But you are doing a meditation on some Tibetan deity. You go to Tibetan Buddhism and you start practicing with Tibetan Lamas and they teach you deity yoga. You start uh, worshipping Vajradhara or Avalokiteshvara or Dulma or something. And it's all about a discrete sexual symbolism because there is always the masculine, the feminine... And always we have this game that there is the aspect of Shiva or the masculine which is invisible, non-manifested, super discreet. And then there are energies which are like interfaces. Exactly as you can't see a hand or the hand of the invisible man, you can't see it. But if you put a glove on it, suddenly you can see the hand of the invisible man. You see the glove. You don't see the hand. The invisible hand is Shiva. And the glove is Shakti. And you always interact with Shakti. You interact through the interface. And that's why uh, this is a sobering thought to remember. That whatever you do, it's about polarity. In the first evening lecture that we do in Agama, after we do the lecture What is Yoga, which is totally introductive, landmark but introductive the first technical lecture which we do in day two every month is the lecture on the polarity of energy which is not never explained clearly in other courses but without understanding the polarity of energy you don't understand pretty much anything even yoga is hatha yoga the yoga of the sun and the moon ha is the sun and ta is the moon Everything in yoga, even in Hatha yoga, you don't need to go to sexual symbolism. Hatha yoga then, if I have my inner woman in the left side and my inner man in the right side, Hatha yoga is almost like I make love to myself. And again, that doesn't mean the crude sexual interpretation that I'm just touching myself and having self-stimulation sex. It goes much, much deeper than that. We are talking about the fact that there is polarity even in the practice of Hatha Yoga, even in the practice of Mantra Yoga, even in the practice of doing Laya Yoga with colors or something, there is always the underlying presence of masculine, feminine, and how these can be used. That's why this is much more than the sexual aspect, because polarity is necessary all the time, all the time. The number five paragraph which would be the last or the last but well, the last but one in what i wrote here as for warming up as i just wanted to fix on paper some of the main metaphysical ideas and then starting from that to go into the exploring this 
the supernormal domination of the universe and the paranormal powers, which are spoken about in different forms of yoga, becomes pos- possible, especially because Tantra ascertains some correlations between man and the universe, between subtle cosmic forces and certain techniques. One Tantric yoga has elaborated a total system where the various levels correspond to each other, like your Manipura chakra corresponds to the sun. Actually, when you do sun salutations, you find out that even the Anahata chakra corresponds to the sun. There is a part of the sun which reacts with your Manipura, and that's predominant. There is also an aspect of the sun which resonates with your heart chakra, and some yogis have found that they can use visualizations of the sun, as you will learn later in Agama courses, for activating the third eye. So therefore, there are very complex correlations, all of them based on energy. It's all of them like this corresponds to that. And thus, through a sort of a spontaneous reflection, the forces act upon each other. And the energy is at the same time human and cosmic, the manifestation of the universe and the chaining of the man in this world are parallel to each other. Like some everything which happens in the universe corresponds to something which happens in the human being. Not only visible, like visible, we can say, sure, Jesus was a great avatar, and when Jesus was born, there was at least one major astronomical inexplicable phenomenon, like some, some supernova or something which exploded in heavens, and Jesus was born at the climax of this presence of a new shining star, comet, something which we don't, until today, we don't know fully scientifically what was this star above Bethlehem under which Jesus was born. But in this way, we see that everything, everything has correspondences from macrocosm to microcosm, and it's with energy only that you can understand these things. Also, the so-called hidden physiology of Tantra, that Tantra describes the human body not only as kidneys and liver and lungs and so on, but it describes like Sushumna Nadi with Ida and Pingala, seven chakras, five bodies, and a lot of other such details which are used very concretely in the practice. Those of you who are in the first level of yoga, you don't know how concrete these things are used, but they are used very concretely. And uh, therefore, all this ensemble of chakras, nadis, bodies, everything through which mysterious energies run in the human body also provides an experimental basis to these correspondences. That's why another characteristic of tantra, tantric yoga, is that it's yoga with energy and it's also yoga with chakras and nadis. And whenever the chakras and nadis are mentioned in a text of yoga, you know automatically you talk about tantric yoga. It must be a brand, a variety of tantric yoga. In the non-tantric texts of yoga, like in the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali, which is not tantric yoga, it's classical yoga. In the Bhagavad Gita, which is the Vedic yoga where Krishna speaks, and others... There is not a mention on any chakra. 
Patanjali says, if you perform samyama on the pit of the throat, then you don't feel hunger and thirst, and then you do this and that. He says the pit of the throat. That's the pit of the throat. He doesn't say Vishuddha Chakra. He speaks about it without speaking about it. He doesn't mention that there are subtle bodies and in these subtle bodies there are wheels of energy. That's Tantric Yoga. That's another chapter in the long history of yoga. It's other yogis, other teachers, other traditions. This is very, very powerful in Agama. It's our backbone and this knowledge is fundamental. Finally, the last of the paragraphs which I brought here for the basics This thus, by taking all this into account, Tantric Yoga starts from the idea of the magic dominion of the universe. For example, the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali doesn't say that you should dominate the universe. Yoga Sutra of Patanjali says that when you reach enlightenment, you reach a state of consciousness which is called Kaivalya, and Kaivalya means insulation or isolation. It's exactly like you are in a cocoon. The universe keeps living its shitty life, and you are in paradise. You are in ecstasy. No, You are isolated. Whatever happens in the universe doesn't touch you. You have reached peace. You have reached happiness. You have reached ecstasy. And you are perceiving only that ultimate level of divine consciousness. Buddha does not divide the spir- define the spiritual realization as domination over the universe. The word nirvana means extinction. It's equivalent to the word used in Pali, Nibbana and then Nirvana in Sanskrit, with blowing off a candle. So what candle do you blow off? You blow off the candle of your desires and the candle of the wish to live, attachment to the flesh and to life, to breathing. That's why the idea of Buddha about spirituality is almost scary, because it's an idea based on the void and leaving everything. In a certain way, it's like a self-destructive or suicidal type of approach. Like you have to leave everything. There are many people say, Swamiji, if I don't have desires, like I don't desire a falafel, I don't desire a hug, I don't desire to watch the sunset, I don't desire to enjoy the nature, then I could as well be dead. Like if I don't desire anything, then I'm just sitting there, empty, then isn't that death already? No. That's why some people can't even tolerate it. You know, they say, wait a second, I mean, this is too much for me. I don't want nirvana because nirvana actually means I have to switch off everything. And I don't know if I'm prepared to switch off everything. Of course, it's a misunderstanding because Patanjali, Buddha and others, they prepare, they present their truth in their own way. And they don't have a tantric or energy-based symbolism. So they don't tell you that when you are in Nirvikalpa Samadhi, according to Patanjali, or when you are in Nirvana, according to Buddha, that actually corresponds to a certain energy. It's a a very ultimate energy, which Kashmiri Shaivism, for example, calls Unmana, which means beyond the mind, that it transcends the mind completely. But still, and thus, looking upon these things in different ways, it's like, so Tantra says, no, 
you are not going anywhere, you are not escaping, you are not killing yourself, you are not annihilating anything. You are actually dominating the universe, according to the idea that Shiva, the cosmic consciousness, dances with Shakti. And therefore you have to learn to dance with Shakti, like Shiva does. And that's why it's about the tantric ideal is more like a superhuman being who won over himself or herself, dominating the body, mastering desires. And this is done only to become the equal of this aspect of Shiva, like identifying, trying to become one, and the energy makes this possible. That's why the basic idea is that with a view to this, not only that you liberate yourself from the universe, but you control it, and the idea is that you don't have to give up the world and the life, but you have to conciliate as well the life in the world, which may contain pleasures, all sorts of things, feeling, you know, and the total liberation. So, in this way we understand, I warmed up a little bit at a metaphysical level to understand the import of this concept of energy, working with energy that actually fundamentally and philosophically speaking, the energy is the alpha and the omega. The energy is what goes from man to God. The energy is the in-between, in-between my isolated, limited condition and the condition of a universal consciousness, it's all energy. Ah, that some people maybe won't make it in this lifetime, in this body, but they are just going to go 30% up that ladder, and that simply means, or any way that they improve their existential condition, that their existential status becomes much better anyway, that's a different story. Because not everybody is equally prepared for the spiritual things. Some people, it's exactly like with the apples on a tree. Not all the apples go ripe in the same day. Everybody who had had an apple tree in their garden knows three apples are ripe today, another two apples are ripe tomorrow, another five apples are ripe the day after, and it takes like two weeks or three weeks before all the apples on the tree, they become ripe. It's the same with the human beings. Not everybody is ripe now, to do the Buddha thing today. And today can mean even in this lifetime. Today it can mean in the next five years. I have encountered in my life people who did yoga for five years. For five years they were like, it's a harsh word to say, but I like sometimes to use brutalities of word like this. For five years they were non-entities, like they were a face in the crowd. They didn't do anything spectacular in yoga. They just accumulated knowledge and did a bit of practice. And then after five years, suddenly like something exploded inside them. And it's like, Whoa, now it's time to go serious about this thing, you know. And then the ugly little duckling turned into a swan. Suddenly, it became something else. So the same with you. Maybe not all of you are swans right now. I use the swan not only because Hans Christian Andersen's fairy tale, but also because the swan is a spiritual symbol in Indian culture, used in Vedanta and others as a symbol of the transmigrating soul. So it's a double entendre here that I'm using with this. That's why 
of course, uh, the understanding of the energy is opening the doors. And I would like to just show you a few of the ideas which I have here. You know, my first on the list, and they are not necessarily in the most logical order. They are just as they came to me when I was trying to show to people the different things. Is like recently I had a series of four satsangs about Shambhala. And then we talk about Mahavidya Yoga. We had a module of Mahavidya Yoga a week ago, and then there will be another one coming in May. And many people are a bit puzzled. What is this? You hear in Tibetan Buddhism about deity yoga, that human beings visualize and meditate with deities. And what can this do to you, actually? And why would be this beneficial to you? And... What is the relationship between apples and pears? Like, how do you compare Shambhala, which is a wild idea in itself, and the gods? Is Shambhala higher? Because it is said in various aspects of Tantric Yoga that a human being worshipping a deity can go even beyond the level of consciousness of that deity, like above. So if in Shambhala there are people who have gone above, then Shambhala would be like above the level of the deities. But then what is the level of consciousness of Kali and Tara and deities? You know, it's like, how do they compare? Tibetan yogis, for example, say that the level of consciousness of the king of the world from Shambhala is completely identical and comparable, and there can be transfer of yoga practice from one to the other, with a level of consciousness of the most fundamental form of Buddha, the Buddha, which is the ultimate Buddha, which in Tibetan, most often in Tibetan culture, it has two other equivalent names, but we can't go there right now because it would mean turning too much in that direction. If the main name is Buddha Vajradhara. Vajradhara, Buddha Vajradhara, has the same consciousness level with the king of the world from Shambhala. So, how would you make these equivalences if you wouldn't have the tool of energy, that it's the same frequency of vibration, it's the same channel, it's the same modulation, it's the same energy, basically? You wouldn't. Then you would have religious strife where somebody worshipping Kali from India would say Kali is more important than the idea of Shambhala. And somebody doing Kala Chakra Tantra in Tibet would say that's a nonsense with meditating on Shambhala and with the king of the world. By using the mantra of the king of the world, you can reach at the level of the highest of the highest of deities. This is Tantric Yoga. Only with energy as a bridge, you have a measuring tool. Only energy gives us a measuring tool to evaluate the in-between. What's in-between me and the omega, the alpha and the omega. But in-between, you have all the rest. That's exactly where the energy helps us. Studying using energy on death and dying. Because death and dying, no, it's like the workshop has just been there. Perhaps there's another one this year sometime. Uh, death and dying is about a human being moving from a physical level to an astral level of consciousness. The final condition of your consciousness when you will be dead will be higher than now. Except if now you are dead already in your consciousness, which means if you've done yoga for 20 years, then you know how it will be when you will die. And thus, 
like what allows us to define the mysteries of death and dying, the art of dying. What is that really? Because that can be understood only through energy. Why does it matter if your soul leaves the body through the top of the head or if your soul leaves your body through your urinary channel, through your Svadhisthana chakra channels, no, through the lower part of the body in the perineum? And why is the outcome different? Because a dead person is a dead person as far as a materialistic person goes. But in reality, in the world of spirit and energy, the difference is fundamental as if you walk in fire or if you walk in water. No? Walking in water has completely different effects than walking in fire. And thus, healing by energy in Agama and in Tantric Yoga, healing, even as you learn in the Therapeutical Yoga TTC and others, or when you go to the healing center and get some simple formulary of healing, it's all related with energy. Like, it's not just enough to say, um, I need to work on my thyroid gland because of I'm having a slow metabolism. But what if that involves putting more fire energy in your system and amplifying the effects of fire? So it's one thing when you analyze things materialistically and chemically, and it's another thing when you think about the energies which come into the game. Some people are trying to, you know, I'm trying to take some pills for my thyroid gland, but at the same time, my yang is very low, my fire is very low, a few other things are very low, I never go to the beach, my skin is white as milk, I never take any sunshine in my body, and then I'm wondering why some things are not working chemically. I take this medication, but the medication itself seems not to work, because it's not only the medication. It's like, I remember at the time when I was living in Denmark, they were all complaining as soon as they understood yoga that they were not having enough fire, that the climate was wet and cold, which is the defining staple of water. And of course, the Scandinavian countries are famous for a lot of Svadhisthana chakra. There's a lot of Svadhisthana chakra in that climate, you know. And generally, in all the places where there is lots of rain above average <coughs> and cold, and, and then some of the Danes... Uh, in the winter, they love to run to India or they love to run to the south of Italy or some place so that they would get more sunshine and that they will get more heat. But then the disciples in yoga, they simply said, well, when winter is coming, we start doing 108 Udhyana Bandhas every day. That's exactly like traveling to India. No? You get your sunshine also by working on your Manipura and activating the sublimation then you don't need to go anywhere. The sun is coming to you. You don't need to go to the sun. No? And because you cannot expect that the whole of Denmark should emigrate out of Denmark and move in another country and leave it empty because it's too much of a watery climate there. So, of course, there have to be solutions in which the human being adapts to whatever challenges are there. On the contrary, in tropical India... There is always too much pitta, too much fire. And then in tropical India, they constantly advise you to drink milk and to eat butter, which in Scandinavia is not such a good idea. 
But in the scorching sun of India, if you don't drink milk, and like the yogis, everybody says, oh, milk is not so healthy. How do you explain then that the yogis for the last 5,000 years have been drinking milk like snakes? I have, when I lived in Rishikesh, there were sadhus, swamis, you know, and people said, you know, people don't have the enzymes to digest the casein in milk. And the guy said, then I must be a baby. Well, there was 65 years old yogi, and he said, the guy said, I must be a baby at heart, because every day I drink one liter of milk, and I feel fantastic. No? Like in the scorching sun of India, and this, this Swami who was talking, he was a Leo astrologically. He had too much fire, and he was a skinny, dark tanned type, typical Pitta person. Then for him, milk was salvation. No? So that's why talking in healing by energy is a totally different thing then saying, oh, you should not drink milk because it has casein and some people don't have the enzymes to digest it. That's bullshit. Because it depends on other factors as well, which are not outlined chemically or materialistically. Analysis of space-time and consciousness. Somebody asked me to promise that uh, later, probably in June, I will do the great lecture on space-time connection with consciousness and the understanding of Tantra, of the chakras and of the dimensions, uh, which is a groundbreaking, a fundamental lecture which I give sometimes. Somebody told me that there might be a copy uploaded already, so if it is so, then you can watch it in advance as well. You know, understanding space-time. Space-time, you know, if I understand them in an Einsteinian way, like in a Newtonian way also, like absolute principles in the universe... They don't mean anything, but you are going to see that for the yogis, they are related to the chakras. They are related to the levels of consciousness. They are related to evolution. They are related to karma. They are related to a lot of fundamental things. And by understanding space and time in terms of energy, then you can understand the great picture, the great picture of evolution, both individual and universal. We are very happy to use the concept of Shakti or of energy when we speak about the so-called invisible waves, forbidden technologies, parapsychology, radionics, and a few such things, including paranormal phenomena like astral projection, lucid dreaming, and others uh, that we teach here in certain workshops and throughout certain courses, because only then... Can you understand, like, why does a pyramid made of cardboard produce very strange effects even on your meditation, or if you sleep under it in the night, even on your dreams and sleep? Now, there are some people who take such a pyramid and align it properly, and they do what is to be done, and suddenly their dreams go from black and white into color. The first night they do this, they have the first color dream in their whole life. And it's like just a, it's just a pyramid made of cardboard. It's just like a toy for children. Just a piece of cardboard, of folded cardboard, you know. And where, what's the energy? Why does that energy produce that effect? When I dream that I have sex with somebody, why is it sometimes so fascinating and so magic? In some, no, like what is the energy and all the energetic, all the energy implications there? The great mystery of sublimation, tantra, alchemy, 
Everybody who did the day 10 of our first level intensive courses already gets information which is invaluable, which would be invaluable anywhere in spirituality. If you'd be a monk in a Christian monastery and somebody would give you that lecture, suddenly your jaw would drop and you'd understand a million things about what is working and what is not working and what you should do and what you should not do. And thus, the sublimation is a fundamental key in spirituality because the whole spirituality is about sublimation. People like Rumi and like Ramakrishna and like Milarepa and like Saint Teresa of Avila, these are people who sublime, 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 and sublime. And the other 999 people out of a thousand who lived in the same city with them, but they didn't reach anything spiritual, there were people who did not sublime, who somehow mysteriously failed to sublime, or they sublimed too little, or they sublimed too late, or something did not go accordingly. That's why the very mystery, we take it very easy, you know, we teach you about sublimation, that sublimation is a change of energy from slow energy to fast energy. It's like you speed up the energy, like the energy becomes zoom. No, it moves to the next octave and to the next octave and to the next octave, faster and faster, you know, more and more spiritual and so on. This is a fundamental key which is never explained energy-wise. Like people say, oh, come on, lighten up, don't be so heavy. What does it mean? What does it mean? And the fact that you can actually do it with Sarvangasana or that you can do it with Udhyana Bandha, it's like jaw-dropping, you know. It's, you, you take it for granted because you learn it in the yoga hall. It goes easy. You do it for five days and you start seeing that it works. You start feeling what's happening. No, and then you take it for granted. But that is pre-digested. You have, it was chewed for you before you got it. No, because otherwise it's very difficult to understand these things. How many spiritual people in Buddhism and whichever you name it, wanted to sublime and sublime and sublime, to start from a normal human being, which is like an unpolished diamond, and to reach the nirvana, which is like a perfectly polished diamond. How do you polish the diamond? It's all sublimation. It's all sublime. To reach Shambhala, you have to sublime. It's all about sublimation. And sublimation is such a technical concept when it comes to energy. And that's why it connects with alchemy. In alchemy, they said alchemists were trying to transform lead into gold. That sounds good for greedy people. It's a metaphor which is used specially to cheat on greedy people who think you are taking a cheap, dirty metal and you make it. And then what do you do with the gold? When you take three kilos of lead into three kilos of gold then you are wealthy suddenly. You know, you can sell the gold, buy more lead, and make even more gold. That's not what alchemy is about. That's just a stupid metaphor in which lead is like your Muladhara and Zvadistana, and gold is like your Ajna and Sahasrara. So gold, all these metaphors of alchemy, the sexual energy being transformed in sexual tantra, and all this sublimation, they find the proper application and how to do it only when you understand this wonderful concept of energy. Because it's all just a transformation of energy. Exactly as you would have a special device and you turn the light, it would produce light, and in the beginning there would be blue light 
I'm sorry, red light, and then you'd make it yellow and blue and violet. You know, it's like the frequency increases from red to violet, you can increase it. That's a sublimation. That's a rising of the frequency of vibration. No? But the question is, how much red energy have you got in your auras and in your chakras? How much violet energy have you got in your energy, in your chakras and in your aura? No? Usually, if we, when we study this, we see it by the effects. Because any tree is known by its fruits. We look at your life, we look at your health, we look at the events, we look at this and we know immediately how much of this color and how much of that color is. That's why uh, even this mystery of sublimation is ultimately a mystery of the transformation of energy, of the conversion of energy. We present it to you simply in a lecture in the day 10 of the courses, and then we show you the shoulder stand, and next day we show you the Prasarita Padottanasana, and the next day we show you the Udhyana Bandha, and then you've got a foundation for some sublimation, even as beginners. But this rabbit hole is much, much deeper, and if a Christian monk doesn't understand how he does the prayer of the heart, and he becomes more and more spiritualized. Like, what is really happening? Oh, he says, God takes mercy on my soul and puts beautiful ideas in my mind. That's a very mystical explanation which bears no uh, reference to what is happening physically and scientifically. We have working with emotions. Now, why is it preferable to be happy instead of being sad? And actually, when you are sad, is your energy slower or faster than when you are joyful? No? Emotions. Emotions are a complete nonsense. Today everybody is so dependent on emotions, so blinded of the emotions, so enslaved by emotions, that Minagama, we have introduced yoga and psychotherapy and other things to help you deal with emotions, which don't exist in the classical yoga, because the classical yogis didn't give a rat's ass about their own emotions, you know. They didn't look and say, oh, look at me, my emotions are like, fuck, die. You know, it's like, doesn't matter, just go, you know, like French legionnaires in the French legion, walk or die. You know, it's like, don't look, but I feel tired and my little child is hurt. Walk or die, you know, it's like stop complaining. No, be Spartan, there's no time to deal with this. Today, the world is very different and people are paying an end. How do you work with emotions without understanding the energy behind them and their correlation to the chakras? Maybe joy is a vritti or a petal on one chakra and sadness is another petal or another vritti on another chakra. And then we know immediately this is on a higher chakra, this is on a lower chakra. Or working with thoughts, working with the mind. It is said permanently that it's better to be optimistic than to be pessimistic. That people that are pessimistic attract trouble upon themselves. You know, it's like why is pessimism inferior to optimism? Some people say, no, no, I'm not pessimistic. I'm just realistic. But all the time it's like, no, 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 no. Can't do, can't be. You know, it's like, it's actually, it's pessimism, but the nickname, the realism, because the person doesn't want to say that they are negativistic, you know. And other people, why do the optimistic people win more often than the pessimistic or the so-called realistic people? No? Why is it good? Because just understanding them as thoughts... We don't have a hierarchy. We don't have a system. We don't have anything clear. 
And that's why we, uh, even working with emotions, thoughts and others, is only with energy it makes sense. Otherwise, you need to have some systems where there are like some dogmas. When you have this, you do that. No, like, let's say, if you are feeling greedy, then you have to cultivate generosity. Like Pratipaksha Bhavana, as Patanjali calls it, the cultivation of the opposite thought. If any time you feel greedy and that you lack generosity, then you should make an effort to go against it and cultivate generosity and so on. And then by cultivating the opposite emotion, what's the opposite emotion really? Is the opposite emotion of hate, is it love? Because really hate is on Manipura and love is on Anahata, you know, so it's like, is it? Or maybe hate is compensated by kindness. Kindness is not love, it's another emotion. Or maybe hate is compensated by simply calmness, because the person that hates cannot really be calm. Because no. So what's the opposite? Where is the system? Who gives you the system of a diagram which says this is the opposite of this, and there are 49 emotions of the... You don't have it. It doesn't exist even in psychotherapy after 200 years of psychiatry and psychotherapy. It doesn't exist. But with the energies... The understanding is where because you say, I'm depressed, therefore I have too much energy in Svadhisthana. If I do a hundred with the Anabandhas, for six hours I will not be depressed. Then you would say, well, so does it mean I have to do a hundred with the Anabandhas every four hours, every six hours? Yes, what would, what would you do if that would be the only condition to be happy? The only condition to be happy is that God is a sadistic bastard and has put this rule. You can be happy if you do a hundred Udhyanabandhas every six hours for the rest of your life. No? Then the question is how many people really want to be happy? No? Or how many people say, nah, that, that's too much. I'll be miserable. Okay, be miserable. It's at least it's a conscious choice you know, to do one thing or another. So understanding, working with emotions, thoughts, mind, which otherwise is a labyrinth which makes no sense. Because how would you say a joy is a higher frequency of vibration than sadness? Not really. Maybe they are just opposites. And if they are opposites, they are on the same level. But they are not. Pessimism and optimism are not on the same level. And thus, understanding the energy is fundamental, it brings so many breakthroughs. Astrology and yoga, no? what, why do we refer to astrology, and why does the movement of the stars and the planets and other things, why does it even matter at all? How is the human being related to the universe? You know? And so many people come to yoga when they are around the age of 29. It's just one group, not everybody. But many people come to yoga around the age of 29, plus minus one year. Because 29 is the Saturnian return of everybody. When you are 29, Saturn is exactly in the same position where it was when you were born. And you don't know that Saturn is making you, the influence of Saturn is making you dissatisfied and is making you ask, some, ask yourself some crazy questions, like what the heck am I doing with my life? Is there nothing a bit deeper than that? I'm disenchanted with relationships. I'm disenchanted with business. I'm disenchanted with corporate world and other things. What am I doing? No? It's an, not everybody comes to yoga when they are 29. But we even know, some people in the school even made statistics. And there is a huge bell curve 
a lot of men and women come around 29, the age of 29. That's when they take contact with yoga or with the spiritual. There are other key moments in life. This is just one which I can explain very easily. There are many others, but like in this way, there are patterns. And seeing these patterns makes you understand things in a totally different way. Magic and yoga, you know, it's like people are doing magic that you are, I don't know, invoking some power. Even the shamans, you know, they call upon some fairies or something, like the Findhorn people. They invoked fairies and spirits to grow tomatoes and cucumbers. And they grew some ginormous tomatoes and cucumbers simply because they were blessed by the fairies. You know, it's like, come on, is this a fairy tale? No, it's actually a story of something which concretely happened in the 20th century. Two women and a man did actually the Findhorn thing. And Findhorn is by no means utterly exceptional. Like most of the medicine men and shamans of the world have done things way more spectacular than Findhorn. The whole basic culture of the shamanic and animic communities was based on such things. So how is this magic working if you are calling upon spirits, if you are interacting with invisible entities? It sounds spooky, but is, is that a matter of energy? Can be actually understood energetically? Like your father is passed away and you give him a bowl of rice. You take a photo of your father and you put a bowl of rice in front of it and you consecrate it. No? Like Why? What has your father who is dead got to do with some rice which is just a cereal boiled in water? How do they relate if you don't understand the concept of energy and then if you don't understand what does your father need and what is the currency by which some things are paid in this universe, like even in magic, the currency is energy. Whatever people do in magic, it's about energy. The magic things don't work without the proper investment of energy, exactly as a table clock from the old days was needing recharging every morning. You woke up and the first thing which you did was crank, 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 turning the clock. And then you knew it works minimum 24 hours from that time. No, But if you don't crank it, then it stops. The same with magic. If you don't crank it, it stops. No, So it's all about energy actually there. What is the understanding of it? So you can even understand elements of magic because in the school some people are doing fire ceremonies from India. Some of you are studying the Mahavidya modules and there they teach you how to make pujas and rituals. And it's like, what? How do you do? Why do you do that? It's all about energy. There's a dynamic of energy. And if you understand the dynamics of that energy, then suddenly spirituality and such practices become very clear. Metaphysics and yoga. What does mean evolution in terms of your soul? In metaphysics they speak, Yogananda says that if you rise to the level of Ajna Chakra, you go to Hiranya Loka after your death. But he also says that if you have a miserable karma and a horrible level of consciousness, horribly low, then when you die you go in hells and you can spend 25,000 years in a hell which seems without end. It's like hell forever. It's not forever because only God is forever. But if it's 25,000 years, it's almost like forever. You know? And therefore, what are hells? Where do they exist? 
What is characteristic? You know, some people say, I don't believe in hells. I think the religion was using them to scare us. Really? Then why do the shamans from North America talk about them? Why do the shamans of Siberia talk? Why do the Tibetan lamas talk? It's not about the Christian religion or some manipulation. It's the hells have an objective existence and so do the paradises. But therefore, to understand metaphysically the hierarchy, the structure of the universe, the scaffold of the universe, the power of the mind, and the Raja Yoga, how do things happen with the mind? That you do something with your mind, and then some people, I don't know, have astral projection, or they walk on fire, or they do all sorts of funny and unusual things. How does the mind interface? Like, what's the mind? That I in my mind say, Allah, Bala, Portokala, and then something happens, but like, why? How? No, they, there is no link, there is no explanation, and if there is no explanation, then the only thing which I can understand is just some formula. Like you say abracadabra, and that's it. But it's not a formula, there is a process, and if you understand the process, then you truly understand what's happening, and you can fiddle with the process. Because otherwise you just say, as long as I say abracadabra, it works. When I don't, it doesn't work, and I don't know why. I just know only one way of doing this, and that's hammered and nailed. No? That's not a way to understand things. In, as I mentioned, parapsychology, radionics, astral projection, and the list could continue. I just wanted to open your mind a little bit towards the things which uh, energy, the understanding of energy, makes possible. I I know, I know some of them directly now, it's not that I know generically, that there are so many things which I left out of that list simply because I didn't have the time. Try to think about the mystery of Kundalini. Why is the Kundalini the supreme, the ultimate evolutionary force which exists in the human being? And how does Kundalini transform the human being? And again and again, the list could continue in all the fields of development of the human being and in all the fields of study of this. And um, to conclude, I, for one, when I was young, I related very much with this tantric yoga because I had the mind of a person who was interested in physics and positive sciences. I studied engineering and then for me yoga had to be like an engineering, an engineering of the body, an engineering of the mind, an engineering of the emotions. Because otherwise, it's like when you lack this technical precision, then it's like, I did this, I did that, and then sometimes maybe it works, and sometimes maybe it doesn't work. And I don't know why it works when it works, and why it doesn't work when it doesn't work, and all that. On the contrary, understanding the Shakti aspect, that's why for the tantrics, Shakti is so important and we worship the feminine element under the form of Shakti or Shakti under the form of the feminine element as well because Shakti is the all-important element in practical yoga. And I personally consider it the most explicit and the most efficient in terms of practice. I'm not saying that if you do classical yoga in the style of Patanjali, you don't get the effects. 
provided that you are persevering enough and you do 12 years of yoga every day and so on, of course you will get the effect, the results of that. But on the other hand, working with energy gives so much understanding, you know, like why do nations are, to, are said to have a collective soul? Like how is the difference between the collective soul of France and the collective soul of Germany? They are pretty much two neighboring European countries and they have been at war multiple times with each other. So what's between the French and the Germans? That's again a question which addresses an energy. It's about certain energetical things. And if those would be analyzed and studied and dealt with, then, for example, people have the ideal of peace. No, like we talk about art of dying, but maybe your ideal is to create peace. Even peace is a certain energy. There are nine typology in the Enneagram, and one of them is the pacifier, the peacemaker. And therefore, to reach that energy, it involves a certain spoke. It involves a certain type of energy. How can it be obtained? Where it is? How to summon it up? And how to make it be present in greater amounts. Uh, this is the beauty of working with energy and it's something which creates uh, this miracle of clarity and of precision in Tantric Yoga, in Agama Yoga and um, it is one of the reasons for which people always prefer Tantric Yoga because it goes in this direction. I have uh, decided, because this doesn't relate directly with any Q&A that we do and so on, to give you the opportunity in the last minutes that if you feel provoked by, in the positive meaning of the word, to address some questions. I usually don't take questions in the satsangs. I just keep a discourse and then you can think about. But also, if you want to have questions in the Q&A sessions or some other times, then of course, feel free to do that. It's not compulsory, I don't know, I just want to give you the opportunity because sometimes when people hear such things, they get some uh, ideas and they would like to express some questions. So tonight, exceptionally, I would like to spend the last 15 minutes or so of this satsang by giving you, I know it's a bit late, we started late, so that's why I won't keep it much, but just to see if you have any questions which come from this Shakti aspect like the role of Shiva is the role of consciousness, of center, but the role of Shakti is the role of being from Alpha to Omega, the in-between, the, the middle of our transformation and the means of all the transformation which happens in the human being. Questions, if you have any, it's not compulsory again, then we are going to conclude for tonight. And if you are very tired, you better don't ask any question. Because <laughs> I have a frightening ability to talk a lot. Not always true. Not always true. There are people who have been thinking about getting rich or something for a lifetime and it never happened. So that's not, that's not the way I see it. 
No? But on the other hand, the principle of magic works always. Like, for example, Japan and Germany were the two big losers of the Second World War. And Germany became the first economy in Europe. And Japan became the first economy in Asia. And they are the top. How on earth, after they have been squashed and crushed, they became? Here is a hint of what magicians say. They killed people and gave them to Vodan, to Odin. And the gods are rewarding them. Because the German Nazis, the SS, they considered that the war was just a sacrifice, a holocaust of souls given to the northern gods. And the fact that they killed a million people, it was just like you kill lambs, like you slaughter goats. No, instead of killing goats, you're just killing human beings. But you do them for Thor, for Wotan, for all those. Funny, they were crushed and they soon became the number one economies in their places. Isn't that a strange thing that the countries that won didn't really won that much? So, the world works by also by these things of what do you give, what do you put, what do you sacrifice. You may have a negative karma about something and then you pay for that negative karma. And then you also create merit in another way. And then there are effects which, you no. Know, look at Great Britain. Great Britain started having, England started having a real bitchy policy. They turned... Protestant or Anglican, you know, and they went away from the Catholic Church, which in those days was considered a total blasphemy. Like the whole Catholic Church went like, oh my God, you know, look at Henry VIII, what a rascal he is, what a bastard he is. No, they took a whole country out of the Catholic Church, which was a religious blasphemy, and everybody said God will hit them with a lightning soon. You know, they will get a lightning rod soon. No? And then Elizabeth, the first Elizabeth, you know, the red-haired queen, the virgin queen, to keep England afloat, she had to do all sorts of bastardly and immoral things. For example, she paid buccaneers and pirates to plunder the Spanish gold which was coming from the New World. Now, the Spanish gold was blood gold, of course. It was not a nice gold. But the British plundered it. And if you plunder the galleon, a Spanish galleon full of gold, instead of being called a pirate, Elizabeth, the Queen of England, peered you and made the money 50-50 with you. Like anybody would say, you know, the, the woman who does this is a bitch without morals, is a bitch coming from hell. No, like where is the morality in this? Well, like, are you ready to step over dead bodies just so that you preserve your throne or something. You know, like, how far would you go? How, like, cheating, lying, stealing, doing all the shit, and then you proclaim that you are holy? You know, it's like... And then, so everybody thought, oh, yeah, this is not going to end well. Well, eventually, even the financial center of the world moved in the city of London. You know, so much they became brothers with the money. You say English, you say money. You know, also if you say Swiss, you say money, but in another way. No? So that's why I'm saying there are some things in this universe which work exactly by this resonance and by these energies. You know, like what did the British do to become the financial center of the world? 
How did they become? Why, why not the Spaniards? No? Why not the Bohemians? Why not the Czechs? Why not the Danes? So there's many, many things with energy. Slowly, slowly revealing the aspects of energy, you understand a lot of things. No more, no more, or more and more. Thank you all for joining tonight. With this we have finished for now. <laughs>